Have you ever noticed that the more you try to restrict your food or alcohol intake, the more obsessed you become with whatever it is you think you can't have? You know, 95% of people who lose weight on a diet are heavier a year later. And committing to a lifetime of sobriety makes it nine times more likely you'll binge drink in the future. My guest on the show today is Amy Lang. She's the best-selling author of a new book called Thoughts Are Habits Too. And she is here to talk about why telling yourself no creates a false sense of scarcity that your brain is hardwired to resist. My name is Colleen Cashman. I'm a sober-ish recovery coach, helping high-achieving women get emotionally sober so that drinking less or not at all feels like a superpower. Join me each week for evidence-based holistic strategies to regulate your brain chemistry and nervous system and also develop a growth mindset so you can feel proud, confident, and resilient with or without a drink in your hand because it's not about the alcohol. If you're trying to stop using alcohol to cope with stress and sick of waking up and realizing you did it again, you may be wondering if it's even possible to do this on your own. And I want to invite you to my free masterclass this Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. I will explain exactly why your willpower fails when you need it most and also why simply taking a break to reset your tolerance doesn't work anyway. Come and learn how the six components of my proprietary accelerated recovery process work together to holistically restore your mental health so you can stop overthinking alcohol because this is a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. It's not about the alcohol. And if you ever want to be able to drink like a normal person, you have to learn how to feel like a normal person instead of someone who is lost, anxious, broken, overwhelmed, and or incapable of making good decisions. Pause this episode and get into the show notes to register now. I'm not going to pitch you or try to sell you on my program. You'll simply get a big picture understanding of why you're stuck and exactly what it takes to escape the cycle of self-sabotage for good. Also in the show notes is a link to sign up for my new secret podcast on the foundations of emotional sobriety. What is emotional sobriety? Basically, it's when you're no longer intoxicated by your own bullshit. So if you're tired of being held hostage by ever-changing moods and opinions and desires, your own and everybody else's, then you need to get emotionally sober. This audio course is a valuable tool you can use again and again, and I've set it up as a podcast so that it is delivered right to your phone for easy access. And it's free. You're welcome. So get in the show notes and get the link. And I'm so excited to introduce to you today's guest, Amy Lang. She and I recently met at a conference back in LA in December, and she and I were fast friends because her approach to diet is very similar to my approach to alcohol. Both of us have experienced and escaped from our own hell with disordered eating and or drinking and have come out the other side to realize that just like the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of gluttony or overdoing it or excess is not deprivation, it's self-compassion. And Amy's new book called Thoughts Are Habits Too, Master Your Triggers, Free Yourself from Diet Culture, and Rediscover Joyful Eating is an approach to self-compassion with a side effect of weight loss and being happy with who you are in your body. Not when you achieve perfection, but as you are in this moment. She and I are going to discuss why telling yourself no or restricting a certain food group or even alcohol creates a false sense of scarcity in your brain that triggers a stress response. 
And your brain is hardwired to resist scarcity. And this is what leads us into the cycles of self-sabotage and how when you become aware of the difference when you're eating or drinking, of when you're doing it to soothe an anxious mind versus nourish your body, that awareness is the gateway to transformation. You know, it's a very counterintuitive approach to accept yourself as you are in this moment, but it's the only way to change who you are and what you are in the future. Amy and I are going to discuss the power of mindset, the power of your thinking habits, the power of your relationship with yourself. And then she's also going to share her five fundamental habits that you need to adopt if you are trying to lose weight. And as you'll see, these five fundamental habits can also be applied to drinking less or not at all for a period of time. Restricting and depriving and shaming yourself for being where you're at does not lead to health and happiness. And we all know that. You know, this is why even when you do lose the weight or avoid over drinking for a period of time, you have this underlying nagging fear that it's not going to last. You're not going to be able to keep it going. It feels like you're trying to hold your breath. And what happens is inevitably you do have a slip up, a bite of the food you promised you wouldn't, or a drink when you promised you wouldn't. And because you have felt so deprived, your brain overreacts and you go into a binge. You literally lose control. But this is happening in your brain in response to your thoughts, not the food or the alcohol. So if you want to escape this cycle of yo-yo dieting and self-sabotage, this episode will teach you how to respond differently to the black or white, all or nothing thoughts. So let's dive into the episode. Amy, I'm so excited to have you on the show and to introduce you to my audience who I know is going to love you. When I first heard about you and met you, I was super interested in having you to talk about dieting and just getting off of that yo weight loss program. And then when I found out you wrote your book, Thoughts or Habits 2, and we had so much more in common, I just knew we had to get together and do an interview. So I thank you for being here. Colleen, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited. I think this is going to be a great conversation. And I actually am amazed at really how much what we're talking about, there's overlap. So I think that'll be really interesting to highlight. Yeah, it's there's no one thing. You know, in our culture, we have this reductionist viewpoint of health where there's a pill for every ill and one symptom is one genetic cause. And just last week we had a group call and one of the gals was talking about overcoming the impulse to not buy alcohol at the grocery store. And then we talked about the nervous system in the grocery store. And fast forward, the whole problem was her relationship with food and she's starving herself during the day and she's got low blood sugar and she's in a stress response. So now Mm -hmm. she's at the grocery store, like it's all connected and unwinding it. You know, she got on because she wanted to talk about, you know, thoughts about alcohol and we ended up with disordered thinking about eating. Mm -hmm. And so you're so right. It all overlaps. And I just encourage our listeners today, whether it's drinking or eating or working or spending too much money, like it's all, like you said, before we got started about trying to alter your mood, trying to control the outside world. So let's be official about this before we get started. (laughs) Will you please introduce yourself to my audience? introduce myself. Okay. So I'm Amy Lang. I am the author of Thoughts or Habits 2. It's now a best-selling book, which is fun to say. (laughs) I'm a master health coach. I'm a certified personal trainer. Uh, I'm a sleep, stress, and recovery coach, nutrition coach. I owned a health club for 15 plus years. And so I've just had a passion for health and real health true health, authentic health, deep health, however you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, not the shallow stuff. So 
I think we often get really mm, focused, if you will, on physical health. It's superficial, though. I think it's superficial when you look at uh, a certain body shape and size. That's superficial. A physical attractiveness as opposed to, I like to say, if I could unzip you and look at you on the inside, how are you doing? Yeah. And so when we talk about deep health, how are you doing? How are you feeling about yourself? All that kind of stuff. How's that for an intro? <laughs> it's great. And I want to just chime in that we just simply have it asked backwards in that we think that if we struggle and willpower and try to fix or suppress or change then we, if we can change ourselves on the outside, that changes us on the inside. When in fact, going directly to the heart of the matter, as you say, our outward bodies, our external bodies, eventually manifest who we are on the inside. You know, I mean, you can't, you can't hide you can't hide that way forever. People who are beautiful on the outside, you know, within five seconds that if they are not happy and authentic on the inside and letting go as somebody who's gone through life pretty, letting go of that has not turned me into a fat, lazy, unmotivated shrew. I actually would say probably I'm more attractive now that I focus only on my internal health and my mental and physical well-being. And then I just let the, that be reflected in the world is how I'm showing up. And it kind of matches up a lot. Sometimes there's an overlap during the healing process. But if you can let go of this idea that you have to fix the outside body and just focus on the heart of the matter, you're going to get so much farther faster and also have joy the whole entire time. I think something that I'm hearing as you're talking about this is the seeking external validation. Uh, I think Paulina Porskova, the supermodel, she talked about pretty privilege. And I do think that people are treated differently based mm -hmm. on physical appearance. I have no doubt that's the case. I think there's probably some evolutionary biological reasons, right? Like a cause for that or explanation at least, but we're also human beings. Like we can reason, we can think beyond that. And when I hear someone really get focused on the external and trying to control that, I feel like it really is that we're letting, we're not like, we're, the focus of power of control is on, on the external. It's like when it comes to dieting, if people are trying to count calories or track points, things like that, that are external as opposed to focusing on what their body is telling them and paying attention to that and honoring that. Then again, we're putting the focus and the locus of control outside. Yeah. And it's it, words like should, I should do this, I should do that, no excuses, all of those kind of, it's coming from the outside. Someone yeah. else said that and I've internalized it now and I'm trying to abide, if you will, as opposed to much more empowering language would be like, I'm choosing to do this or I want to do this in order to take care of myself. It's coming from a much more self-compassionate, yeah, self-loving place. I know in my brain where I would hit the wall is because I heard you say doing bas basically what we feel we need our bodies, what our bodies need. And for those of us that have grown up with eating disorders or drinking disorders or all the other thing, we don't feel like we can trust our bodies. We feel like our bodies are the problem. We displace mm. our control, not just to the external world, but also, okay, if I'm having a craving, that must mean I just really like to drink or I just really like to eat sugar. And the words that really changed and shifted everything for me was when I heard somebody said, you have to learn the difference between nourishing your body and soothing an anxious mind mm -hmm. and to know the difference. And then we hit the wall of shit, this is an anxious mind. Now what? <laughs> and so I'd love to dive in with you there because I think, you know, if we could trust our bodies, 
or if we thought we could trust our bodies, we wouldn't be here. The problem is we think we can't trust our body bodies and we've mistaken our behaving in a disconnected way that is over consuming food or alcohol or whatever it is. We're blaming our bodies for that when in fact it's our mind. Yeah, that There's a lot to unravel and unpack in that statement. So in my book, the subtitle is actually Master Your Triggers, Free Yourself from Diet Culture, and Rediscover Joyful Eating. And so when you talk about the anxious mind, I think about mastering our triggers. And it really, there's this mind-body connection that I don't want to underestimate. If your body is in that stressed state, if you're in a physiological state of scarcity, your brain is in survival mode. It's very hard to engage your prefrontal cortex and make like executive, logical, reasoned decisions. And when I talk about, we want to start with the fundamental five habits for weight loss, I wouldn't be surprised if that also helps with alcohol, with the desire to mood alter. Because, you know, so I dated a guy who was a recovering alcoholic, and I actually went to a couple AA meetings and then some alcoholic or Al-Anon meetings. And one takeaway from that is to not get hangry, which I thought was actually quite helpful. So it's the whole, you know, not being too hungry, too tired, lonely, that kind of stuff. So if we're taking care of our bodies, then we're staying hydrated. We're getting, like I say, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. I talk about 30 minutes of mindful movement, seven to nine hours of sleep, and eating until you're comfortably full. So it's all about honoring our body that, and getting in touch with what those internal cues are. Now, and I know you have a, <laughs> when I bring up AA and Al-Anon, I know there's this whole, their underlying assumption is actually the same as I think a lot of weight loss programs, where it's this all or nothing as opposed to the continuum. And it's sort of inherently flawed yes. in creating yeah. that binary, that all or nothing, black or white, however, whatever you want to call it. But I, so I bring it up only in that I think it's useful to recognize that hangry thing. And so when I talk about mastering your triggers, there is a, a bit of the, are we taking care of our body? And then what can we do to actually become more aware of our thoughts. If you're in the middle of sort of giving into a craving and then you're like, oh shoot, this is happening again. That's okay. I think in the process, you know, people always want to go, as soon as I become aware of the thought, I'm like, sometimes you're, you don't become aware of it until later. And I think as you practice, you can recognize it earlier and earlier. But the idea would be to become aware of the thought and then figure out what are you making it mean, the interpretation, right? This is cognitive behavioral therapy where now we're reframing it in a way where it better serves us. And it's always easier from the outside <laughs> mm -hmm. to be able to see it because we're reframing a lot of times means getting a bigger perspective, yeah. right? Taking a few steps back. And the perspective that is such a helpful reframe right there is not to set the goal to not do the eating or do the drinking or do the thing that you don't want to do. It's to catch yourself as soon as possible being in that thought pattern. And so the moment you wake up, even if you finished the ice cream 30 minutes ago and you're like, oh, like that moment is the one you're going for because it is that thought process, it is that neural pathway waking up that you want to get to come on earlier. And to your point, you know, as I've seen myself change in many contexts, as I'm working on many behaviors, I'm not working on the behavior, I'm working on the thought pattern. And so the moment you realize that you were in the thought pattern, you're no longer in it. So yeah. that's a win. And then slowly you begin to catch yourself halfway through the act, then one minute before the act and, oh, you weren't able to stop it. But that, I mean, you're always learning, but truthfully, if you set the goal and tell me if I'm wrong, if you set the goal to interrupt the thought pattern, 
that's really the upstream mechanism that needs to change. And then the downstream behavior wouldn't happen. And yes. And I think also when we have the luxury of time, it would be interesting to figure out what the reframe is to begin with. Mm. So I think about one of my clients. I talked about this in the book. She's actually a really good friend of mine. Her name is Cheryl. And she has struggled with her weight her entire life. And one of the rules, because when she went on the ketogenic diet for her wedding, one of the rules that she had was to lose weight, I have to avoid carbs. And she's half Italian and she loves pasta. Imagine this, you're Italian and you're told you can't have pasta. What does that do? It's that feeling of deprivation. And then when she did eat it, because she was giving herself permission, right? It's a very, even though it's easily accessible, she had a scarcity mindset around it. She had created a state of scarcity that says, I can't have it. And her brain's, I want it, I want it, I want what I can't have. Uh, all these reasons for why she should be able to eat it. So when she finally did give in, and I say give in in air quotes, when she finally gave in, she ate a lot more. And I challenged that underlying that belief. I was just, so it doesn't have to be self-limiting and I'm not enough. It can be basic little rules like that, that say, I can't have carbs. I'm like, what if you could, what if you could have as much pasta as you wanted? And the only thing I'm asking you to do is pay attention to if you're still hungry and have you had enough? And she's okay. Wait, so you're telling me that I've made it harder, harder on myself. She tried it. And she actually found that she felt bat better the next morning when she was doing her workouts if she had some pasta the night before. And so I'm like, why not honor your body that way? She ended up, she lost like 28 pounds during the COVID pandemic, eating pasta like three times a week. <laughs> and she could stop because she's, I'm done. I can have some more tomorrow if I want. I can have some more later tonight if I'm still hungry for that matter. So it literally was just the, ability to see that it wasn't scarce. I want to pull that out and highlight it. You know, when you speak of it that way, I realize that is what I've done in many areas of my life. I no longer have anything off limits. You know, I was a strict staunch vegan for mm. many years. And then, you know, I don't eat processed foods. And then I didn't drink for three years, zero alcohol. And now because I'm not saying, oh, I'm going to let myself have alcohol on Friday night. Then Friday night comes and I might stupidly want to drink my face off. Like now I, my goal is I don't think about it. If I want it, I have it. I stop when I'm done. I can have it whenever I want. And I probably am drinking less now than even when I first reintroduced because I was trying to follow rules and I didn't want to have too much. And now, because I don't feel like there's any rules and I don't feel like I can't or I need to limit it because there's something wrong with me, I can do whatever I want. I just notice I my yeah, I just listen to my body and my body's and we're good. No more. Thank you. And if I want more later, I can have it. It's amazing. It sounds so simple. But you, what you're saying is that your client lost 28 pounds with eating pasta because she gave herself permission and noticed that it actually felt good in her body and just followed her body. Yeah. I think she was binging less and the cravings subsided. I mean, I've had other clients who are like, she's a nurse, people, you know, at the nurse's station. Ironically, it's a healthcare setting and people would bring in a big plate of cookies. And she said in the past, she would eat like half the plate before she even sort of recognized, oh, shoot. Um, mm -hmm. And after working with me, there was a day where this woman who brought in the chocolate chip cookies that she loved eating, she ate half the cookie and she threw yeah. the other half away. She's, that's never happened before. Yeah. But I had enough. I was, she just wanted a little taste. And yeah. it, that, like, I think so many people who have those kind of, oh, I'm giving myself, I'm giving in. I have this craving and I that I've created for myself through my thoughts. And there's a lot of brain chemistry that's going on here too. I, I don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, when we talk about addiction or mood altering, 
there's a lot of chemical. You talk about like dopamine and stuff like that, right? That kick yeah. in. Um, I don't want to deny that part. I think it's one of the reasons why it becomes a habit to begin with is that there's that reward that kicks in. But I think it's understanding what is really the underlying need that we are trying to actually satisfy. And instead of using food or alcohol as a way to try to solve the problem, like if you're hungry, eating food solves the hunger problem. But emotionally hungry, the food isn't going to solve that problem. Right? If you're feeling lonely, the alcohol isn't going to solve that problem either. The feeling is informing us that there's some action we want to take. But we need to ask ourselves, like, what is that action? And come from a place of loving kindness. Like I, I, it sounds a little, it's very gentle, but I actually think we're very hard on ourselves. And so that's why, you know, anyone who's a parent, I actually only have a puppy. I don't have kids. I have nephews. (laughs) But I know that when I approach even my dog, it's really from this place of what can I do to take care of you? Uh, And when you're coming from that place, it's a gentler conversation. And I think the gentler ones are actually more helpful. Yeah. How do you get people to develop that relationship with themselves? You know, just walking back in my mind, I would not have told you that for the most part that I was drinking because I was avoiding feelings. Hmm. I wouldn't have really known that, you know, I would have been like, oh, let me sit here and well, there's maybe I'm bored. Like I probably would have owned up to that. I probably would have owned up to it's just five o'clock and it's a habit. And I, my brain is really focused on it. You know, I didn't understand, as you said, the brain chemistry of the whole thing, but how do you guide people into a more compassionate relationship with themselves especially if they don't even realize that's a thing. They're so used to being the way they are in their own mind, they may not realize that A, they don't have a compassionate relationship with themselves or B, that it's possible to change because they don't yet realize that the ego and the higher, like whatever words you want to say, they don't realize that they are not their thoughts. They, They identify with their thoughts, whatever they're thinking. I think it's helpful to see if you can find an example in someone's life where that's reflected, where it's not them, because it's easier to see it in someone else and harder to see it in yourself. But if I can find the parallel, I mean, I think that's why group coaching programs are so powerful is because something happens to someone else and you're like, oh, wait, (laughs) that applies to my life too. Someone had the courage to raise their hand to get coached, and then you recognize it in yourself. Yeah. Having it pointed out, I mean, I think if it's pointed out gently, you can, it's, things like boredom is an easy, that's a very safe one. Mindless eating, right? Like when you're watching TV and you have that habit, that there's not a lot of emotional charge to boredom. It's right. kind of easier to come at. Stress can be a little harder. Like I know a lot of people who stress eat and they're like, oh, the work situation is just out of control. And I'm thinking to myself, it's your thoughts about the work situation that are triggering the stress. And just recognizing, oh, it's my thoughts. How can I reframe it? I love the example of, and this was a few years ago. I want to say it was uh, January 1st of 2020. There was a professional surfer. I have this in my social media feed. There was a professional surfer who he spotted a woman being pulled out into sea kind of thing. And so this woman was sitting on a rock and the waves hit her. She wasn't a strong swimmer and she was getting pulled out. She couldn't figure out how to get back in. He, on the other hand, is a professional surfer. That surf doesn't throw him at all, right? And so he was able to read the water and figure out where to meet her. There were all these other people on the beach that were, you know, trying to help, but probably still not as capable as he was. And he saved her. Same situation, same ocean, same surf. One person's overwhelmed. The other person knows what to do. 
So it's not about the situation. It's about like your experience, your skills, all that stuff. And this woman probably can take swim lessons and get stronger. She could have, you know, get work with a mentor to figure out when I'm in the ocean, what it depends on what, you know, what that situation is and what skills you figure out would be beneficial. But ultimately, I don't believe that it's about the situation. I do yeah. think it's about our thoughts. And do we believe we know how to deal with it? Do we yeah. have the resources, things like that? I absolutely love that story because it also, you said she didn't have the experience and the skills. Mm-hmm. I think the assumption that we jump to when we might listen to that story and say, okay, yeah, the situation is the same, but he's better capable. He's more able. He's made of stronger stuff. And so then we demonize ourselves because we're weak and we mistake our inability to work through this as a reflection of who we are as a person Mm. and not simply experience Uh, in a different framework, like you and I have been talking about, and then skills that you build. Like, Mm -hmm. I cannot believe how strongly skilled I am at this point in my life, walking through such difficult things. And I'm able to diagnose myself with, oh, I'm in nervous system dysregulation. I'll be back in 60 seconds, 60 minutes or never. Okay, I got to go. And being (laughs) able to promise or being able to realize that I have the skill to do this and where I don't have the skills, I can ask for support. I can ask for help. I can learn that growth mindset that I didn't just show up here. I am the way I am. It's going to be this way. It's always been this way. But actually to recognize what we are talking about in terms of reframes, what is that? Or in terms of coping skills or in terms of just managing our brain chemistry and nervous system, that these are skills. They're not Mm -hmm. things you're born with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Processing emotions is a skill that can be learned. Many of us were not taught. Swimming is a skill. You're not born knowing how to swim. How much time you spend in the water is going to definitely affect how well you swim. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I think there are so many things. I, so actually you bring up a really good point that I want to tease apart here is so often we conflate self-worth and Mm self-esteem. So you were talking about how we make it mean something about who we are, that we weren't able to handle the situation. So Self-worth is about who you are, right? Self-esteem is about what you do, what you've accomplished, what you've achieved, things like that. There's a distinction like for parents, there's a distinction between love and approval. When you think about your kids, you love them regardless, unconditionally. You may not approve of what they do. (laughs) There are times when they do stuff and it's not your proudest moment. Other times it is. So that's about what they do. And I think in this situation we were talking about, it was about behavior. It wasn't about the person. And yet so often when we conflate those two, that's actually where then we're having all this negative self-talk. And it leads to a lot of self-sabotaging behaviors. And it's truly not coming from a place of love or compassion when we're doing that. It reminds me when we talk about eating, imagine being the woman who's a hundred pounds overweight. Mm -hmm. How does she love herself? And I really feel like it begins, first of all, you, maybe she could get where she's going by beating herself up and denying herself, but eventually like those, that's not going to sustain. That's why 80, 95% of people lose weight, gain it back because it just, you can only hold your breath so long. And if holding your breath is the technique you're doing, whether it be keto or whether it be some other, you know, really restrictive diet or high intensity exercise, like you can only do that so long, your body's going to break down, your willpower is going to break down. So the idea that, You have to love yourself and focus there first in order to lose the weight feels really hard. Mm -hmm. But when I think about it, 
it really helps with that self-esteem and self-worth. What if you gave yourself permission to love yourself unconditionally, even though you don't approve of this, you know, 250 pound frame. I love you conditionally as we would a child who was overweight or something and giving yourself permission. What if you gave yourself permission to love yourself right now? Like hating yourself doesn't prove anything. I think that's another question is what there's no prize for hating yourself. There's no prize for beating yourself up and having it's we think that other people can hear our thoughts. And if we're secretly nice to ourselves, you know, I think the biggest fear is that if we love ourselves, that we're going to accept the weight. And that in order to make progress losing weight, we have to hate ourselves. Like we, if we withhold love from ourselves, then we will work harder. But that's that shame-based motivation that we're taught as we're growing up to be rewarded or to be punished. And we kind of, if you talk about getting to the baseline of a belief, one of them is we won't do better unless we're hurting and in pain and punishing ourselves. What do you think about that? I think the way that I look at it that's been really helpful is for anybody who has had a teacher that's been really, like your favorite teacher or your favorite boss, how did you feel when you were around them? And how did they bring out the best in you? And it is this feeling of like, I believe in you and you are worth the time and the attention and the energy. That's coming from a place of love. And I'm accepting you just the way you are. Now, acceptance. So I, again, I don't, I want to be careful. It's like acceptance doesn't mean that you can't want to also get better. It's just accepting like this is who you are now. This is based on your habits up until this point. This is what you, where we are. And as we learn more and we grow more, what changes becomes a reflection of that. I, I like to think of it like in relationships. I remember there was a manager I worked with when I was at Arthur Anderson who talked about like the relationships that you're in are a reflection, are a mirror of what you're ready to see in yourself. And I think, yeah, right? It's a powerful, I'm watching your expression. <laughs> and think about that. Think about like when you look in the mirror, what are you saying to yourself? What do you see? Can you accept this is where I am right now? And can, maybe love is too hard at this point. Maybe it is. But then think about those people that are your favorites in your life. And what they see, what can they see that you're maybe not able to see in yourself yet? And if you, if those people mean a lot to you and they can see that, then it kind of raises the question, like, what do they see? And how, help me see that too, then yeah. you can ask for help that way. That helps. Yeah. You talked about the fundamental five habits I think we only covered one. We've probably covered more, but do you want to list those out? We all love a good walk away oh. to do list. Let's talk <laughs> about them. So hydration, I say half your body weight in ounces of water. So we want to stay hydrated. There's, I say half your body weight because I think someone who's 100 pounds and someone who's 200 pounds, to say that they need eight glasses of water doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So half your body weight, if you weighed 100 pounds, we're talking about 50 ounces of water, right? 50 okay. ounces divide by eight, you do the math there. Mm -hmm. Six and a half glasses, something like that. So if you're 200 pounds, then we're aiming for maybe 100 ounces of water just to do the math. I won't go into the metric system because I can't do the conversion. <laughs> That's a nice, easy for us Americans. Yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. You could also look at the color of your pee. We're talking. Yeah, there's different ways to do it. That would oh, be like. That's what like, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like a light, like a straw color would be a good, right? Light mm -hmm. yellow. So then, so there's hydration. I mentioned this earlier. So five servings of fruits and vegetables. That doesn't mean that I don't want you to eat protein and healthy fats and all that good stuff. But when you look at the. U.S. population and you look at like vitamin and mineral deficiencies, we can make up for that in fruits and vegetables. That's where I think we struggle the most. And especially people who are trying to lose weight. I think 
there there's a lot of processed foods. And here's an example of where I'm focused on building new on building new habits and not on avoiding. So you won't really hear me say avoid processed foods. I feel like if I can get you to focus on getting more fruits and vegetables, the other will take care of itself. There's a little crowd out strategy there. I was just going to say, we learned that in coaching school where you crowd out and I'll be damned if that doesn't work. If you... (laughs) I used to teach, you know, food and weight loss as well. And I remember saying, just up your fiber. If you want to count something, up your fiber to at least 50 grams a day. Feel free to go higher than that. But if you focus on getting 50 50 grams of fiber a day, you're going to be real busy. There's not going to be a lot left over. You know, there's going to be a lot of chewing and jaw fatigue in this story. And I remember, because I used to eat that way, and, you know, because I was always eating big bowls of salad and all sorts of vegetables, and there was a lot of chewing. And, you know, do you want the cookie? No, my, my jaw hurts. I'm so full from the water and the vegetables. So it's called crowding out for those of you that are listening, and it's actually an amazing strategy. Yes. There's also habit stacking. So if you want to drink more water, as an example, and you have the habit of drinking coffee in the morning, how about you pair it with a glass of water if that's not something you normally do? I used to do that when I drank. Every time I'd have a drink, I'd... So yeah, that works too. We, Those of us that are drinkers, we, we know that habit stacking. Drink water, drink wine. Drink water, drink wine. Yeah. I was really good at that. Stay hydrated. We've got uh, vegetables. We've got 30 minutes of mindful movement. So a lot of the folks that I'm working with, we got busy days. In tech, it's if you're in a startup, you're in you're working a lot. There's no like work-life balance in a startup mode. So making time for even go out for a walk, 10-minute walk around the building three times. Take the stairs instead of the elevator. Like all that movement counts. And if you can stay really present to the movement. Be grateful for what your body can do. Breathe in fresh air and sunshine, you know, enjoy the sunshine if you're outside. I love outside, being outside. 30 minutes of mindful movement, seven to nine hours of restful sleep. This is probably, you know, the statistics right now is something like two thirds of the U.S. adult population is getting six hours or less in sleep. And when you, when you graph that trend line over time with the obesity rate, they parallel each other. So in my world, I'm like, let's talk about sleep more as like the foundation as opposed to, and think about eight hours of sleep. We only have 24 hours in a day. So we're talking about a third. Biologically, our body is doing so many things when we're sleeping that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. that are critical for our brain and body health. So if you want to make really good decisions for yourself and the people that you love in your life, besides yourself, sleep is really important. And so prioritizing sleep. So I'm actually going to be doing a challenge, like a five-day challenge at the beginning of the year. So I can provide you with the link for that and all that. Okay. But I really kind of think that Regardless of what folks are trying to do, if you could dial in your sleep, it makes everything else easier. Yeah. Everything else easier. It's so true. And anybody that wants to nerd out should read Why We Sleep by Mm -hmm. Dr. Matthew Walker. And by read, I mean, listen to it on Audible. It's like eating cardboard if you're reading it. But it is so motivating to realize that, like you said, sleep is not one of the pillars of health. It's the foundation. And when I deal, when I help people try to motivate themselves with alcohol reducing, once you realize what alcohol is doing to your sleep, even if your eyes are shut and you're unconscious, it's called passed out, but whatever, but your REM sleep is not there. Your body's healing, your emotional processing and subconscious storage and memory. And it's not even the memory. Yeah. We all know what a brownout is. I can't remember how the movie ended, whatever, but what the what it does for metabolism and immunity and hormone health and digestion and all of these things that we just assume our bodies are like cars that we never have to take to the shop. No, you have to go to the shop for eight hours every night. And the question when you say, I don't have time to sleep eight hours. No, you don't have time to not sleep eight hours. 
you can get away with it one night, two nights, maybe for a period of your time. But the longer you go with dysregulated or deficient sleep, the more your body is going to be pushed into dysfunction. And it's non-negotiable. Like my soon-to-be ex-husband is always saying, I only need four or five hours of sleep. And I'm like, yeah, pretty sure you're a human being. And there's like, maybe he can get away with seven or whatever. But this idea that he can go on four or five hours of sleep, like it's, no, you can't. So here I would just say that's an incomplete sentence. Yeah, It's kind of like with diets, they say you can lose weight. That's their promise to lose the weight, not necessarily to keep it off. So- Okay, with four or five hours of sleep, is that enough to function at an optimal level? That So I think I would just qualify that. So four or five hours of sleep is maybe what you need to maintain functioning at your current level, but it's certainly not the optimal level. Yeah, and I want, you know, life is short. I want to get as much out of it as I can and be able to show up the way I think I want to show up, which is not cranky, (laughs) not impatient, right? Not all of those things. I want to be clear-headed. I want to be able to make good decisions. I want to be able to be present and and be grateful for what I have. All those things that you hear about that are possible when we're in a, a state of physiological abundance, if you will, where where we actually have nourished our body. So in my book, I talk about like um, the joyful eating framework and I have four pillars in mind. So I say nourish. I love that you said nourish. I say trust, gratitude, and love. And so the fifth of the fundamental five is eating until you're comfortably full. Mm -hmm. And if I were to expand that, I would say eat when you're hungry, stop when you're comfortably full. And there's this, when I talk about trust, I use this term and I think I kind of made it up. It's called interoceptive fidelity. Mm. And it's made up of awareness, attunement, and alignment. And I think it applies to your audience as well here. So awareness is like, how am I feeling? What am I noticing in my body? And if you look like all your emotions show up in your body as some kind of sensation, it's really interesting when I get really angry, my fingers will tingle. Mm. That's when I know, oh, like I might not be aware of my heart rate going up, but my fingers will start tingling. There's awareness that there's something going on. There's attunement. And that's where you're accurately interpreting what your body is telling you. So is that headache because you're dehydrated? Is that headache because you're tired? And then alignment would be to actually respond in a way that will address what it is your body's telling you. Eating until you're comfortably full is honoring your body saying, I was hungry then and now I'm not. Yeah. And if you're getting enough fiber, <laughs> your stomach will send signals to your brain telling you that your stomach is kind of distended. If you're getting enough fat, that also helps with the satiety hormones. So I say the combination of fiber and fat, mm-hmm. if you want to help that whole hunger satiety cue that all these weight loss drugs right now, all the semaglutides, right? The Wagovis, the Ozempics, the Manjaro, they're, I'm concerned about what the long-term effects are of those weight loss drugs. Um, And it's that whole prescribed, like quick fix. You were, you started this conversation talking about the reductionist thing. I would always kind of ask myself, like, where's the money? Yeah. Who's making money here? A lot. It's a lot. I have a dear friend who has dropped a significant amount of weight on one of these new drugs. And you know what? That can be the bridge. Like that's not, Mm -hmm. he's been struggling for most of his life. So now, but now in a very short period of time, very short period of time, he's been able to get where he wants to be, which is amazing. But it's kind of like doing anything short term, you know, a lot of I know people that have lost weight with keto. At some point, you can't keep doing that thing. And so if you choose nothing wrong with it, if you choose a shoots and ladder where you can take a shortcut to get from point A to point B, 
But then you have to follow up with integrating and be, and creating a new normal because I, yeah, I wouldn't say it's any necessarily more dangerous yet. I mean, we don't have the science, right? Like you said, it's too new, but I don't know that it's any more dangerous than being morbidly obese, you know, so let's do what we have to do. But then it's just so sad that as humans, we think we have to outsmart our bodies because we think our bodies are the problem. When a hundred percent of the, not a hundred percent, let's go 97% of the time, it's our brains. And so just hearing you talk about the cues for the ghrelin and the insulin and the hormones and, and the cues to start and stop eating, they're all there. You're just so used to blowing through your stop signs that you can't see the stop sign anymore. And to think that you're going to fix that with a pill so that you can continue to ignore your body is it's just short term thinking. And so I encourage anybody that's using those medications, they are doing amazing. But what's it going to look like in a year or five years? And I think the physicians have been saying, first, if you're a type 2 diabetic and that's why you're taking the medication, that it's a completely different conversation, yeah. right? I, yeah, I, I don't want to, yes. yeah, let's not conflate the two. Govi, I believe, is not off-label. It's being prescribed specifically for weight loss. And the doctors are saying basically... If you want to keep the weight off, you need to continue taking the medication. But most of the people that I talk to, one, if you don't have insurance covering it, it is an expensive yeah, medication. Very. It's like $900 a month, if not more. And most people I know are thinking two-step strategy. First, I want to lose the weight and then figure out how to keep it off. Yeah. And I hear what you're saying. I would say if... The thing I love about habits is that you're losing weight the way you actually are living your life. Matthew Perry, in his book, right, he talked about, so he passed away recently, if, if you're not aware. He, it was in the news a lot. It was like- Friends guy, Matthew yeah. Perry. Chandler passed away. Chan and he he struggled with addiction. And I think it was less alcohol, probably more like very addictive substances, pills and things all like of them. that. Yeah. And- he said something like he was in rehab 65 times. He started drinking when he was like 14 years old. I think went into rehab probably first time when he was around 24. But that's a lot of time in your life spent in some kind of rehab. And so I liken that to people who are trying to lose weight being on a diet. Like how many times have you been on a diet? And with habits... You're living your life the way you want to live it and seeing what's happening and it's reflected in your life. So if you're on any of those weight loss drugs, then I would say, can you start practicing those habits now so that at some point when you decide you're not, you've, guess what? You've got all that practice under your belt already and yeah. it is a skill. So you've got all that practice. So hopefully it doesn't come bouncing back that weight gain doesn't come back. So I don't know how that relates to alcohol, but I would bet that there's probably some parallels there as well. Well, what I would say from my own one little opinion, one of 9 billion people on the planet, we all get one. And my opinion based on science and research, it's specific to addiction, but it could apply to food and it can apply to heroin, is that you know, from the first time he went to rehab, he was trained to believe he was powerless and that he couldn't control himself and that there was something wrong with him that he, that he made him different. Mm. When in fact, his brain, he just had a human brain. We all have human brains. And so he was trained to, with a fixed mindset that he can't change his brain. And, you know, they the science of the rehab industry, 75% of people who leave inpatient rehab that are the 12 step sort of, you know, powerlessness approach, 75% relapse in 24 hours. And that's the biggest thing I hear from people mm. who go to AA meetings. They're like, yeah, those meetings make me want to drink. And it's similar to being on a diet for, you know, a day, a week, a month, a year. And then just like you had said, that scarcity mindset that you can't have it, it makes your brain want it all that 
So Matthew Perry was programmed to believe that he wants drugs. His brain just wants drugs. And it's just, it's sad because... So maybe in the weight loss world, it would be that I can't lose the weight unless I'm taking this medication. Right. And yeah. that would be an interesting one to unpack because yes. I don't think that's true. I would just say, what if it's not true? Yeah. Can we just, as part of the reframe, what if that's not true? Yeah. But, and there's no shame in that. I mean, if I was taking a drug and got results I would come to believe that the drug did the thing. Mm -hmm. And the placebo effect is very real. Whether the drug worked or not, you know, it accounts for 30 to 70% of your results anyways. You know, it, there's no shame in that. What I want to full circle back to, and I want to see if you can at some point land it perfectly with the title of your book. Okay. What I want to circle back to is that it's the thinking it's the thinking that controls the results, you know? So yes, you may have a drug that's helping you and that's wonderful, but ask for help to deal with the mindset. What else could be true? It can be true that the drug is helping. Okay. But that's not the only thing that's true. And you're going to have to unpack that. Like you said, I would say, build it out with what else is true and begin to reclaim your own power. Because as long as the drug has the power, then you're going to be struggling without it. And I get it. I, it's scary, you know, to go on and off drugs and attribute results, you know, but that's part of the process. So I would say to, to try to rise to your challenge here with okay. circling back to the, the book, our brain has two big priorities, safety, right? Security. That's why we have the stress response is to survival. It's to keep us alive. And anything that threatens that will, can often, well, will trigger that stress response. And then if we can be aware enough to reframe it, we can bring it to maybe the challenge response instead of the threat response. And the difference there being that the stress response is based on this survival like, oh shit, <laughs> like, can I do this? The challenge response is, I got this. I can do this. And you believe you either have the skills or you have access to the resources you need. Okay. Now, so the first thing is survival. The second is energy conservation. That's why we have habits because we don't have to think. We make, we have to spend very little of our energy in making the decision. And then the routine kind of kicks in. So, when you're talking about your thoughts, just recognize that they're, they are trying to protect you. And so if you're able to say, but I don't need protection right now. I got this. You don't need to protect me. The reward can be growth as opposed to staying in your comfort zone. Yeah. And so those thoughts or habits too, remember, they're just trying to keep you safe. Boom. There's your mic drop. Thoughts or habits too. And what I want to what I want to tease out of what you just said to to make it clear for the listener, if your brain believes that the drug made you lose weight, your brain will perceive a threat when that drug is not being taken. So that's where the thoughts come in of trying to protect you because the threat in 2024, 99% of our threats are not real in the external mm -hmm. world. There's no tiger most of us aren't experiencing earthquakes or landslides or whatever. I mean, it happens, of course, but most of us, our threats are coming from our brain telling our body a scary story like you're going to be real fat again if you don't keep taking this drug. And that turns on the stress response. But what I hear you saying is there's an alternative, the challenge what challenge accepted response? What was it? Yeah, challenge response is use stress. E U S T R E S S versus distress. D I S T R E S S. That's like a spelling bee. <laughs> but the, okay. the yeah, very yeah. good, Amy. Very good. E U S R E S S. E U stress. Is a good like, stress. What is that word? I've never heard of it. Use stress. So that's the challenge response. So if you okay. want to learn more about that, Kelly McGonigal. She's a professor uh -huh. at Stanford. Of her? Wrote the book, Up, The Upside of Stress. And she talks about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, K 
can you tell us a little bit more about your book, where to find it? And let's do some bragging rights. You are bestseller. And yeah. you also made the top, a top new release, didn't you? Yeah. Big deal. Yeah. So I hit number one for healthy diets as well as uh, disordered eating and body image. So we didn't spend a lot of time on diet culture in this conversation, but that's when it comes to the struggle to lose weight. And even just saying that, the struggle, mm-hmm. like I, I tell people weight loss can be easy and inevitable. Yes. And they're like, what are you talking about? No, weight loss is hard. I'm like, no, if you've been told weight loss is hard, guess what? You'll find evidence to make it hard. Yeah. What if it's easy and inevitable? And so the book is Thoughts or Habits 2. It's available on Amazon. It's available as an ebook, paperback, hardcover. And within a few days, I believe it's going to be available on Audible as well as an audiobook. Now, so, did you record that? Yourself? I did. Oh, I did. okay. I'm getting that one too then. You're getting double, you're getting <laughs> twice my money because I want to hear you read it. It's such a good book and I highly recommend to my listeners, if you like what I'm doing, like I'm going to be writing another book, but Amy went ahead and wrote one for me and it's, it's a little <laughs> more food culture. But sometimes when I think I want to write another book, then I read somebody's book and I'm like, crap, So somebody already wrote it. You know, I'd highly recommend Amy and I, we are very aligned. And so if you yeah. like me, may I recommend Amy Lang, like a good little algorithm, because her book is digestible. It There's stories in it. It's very logical and it takes you through the process. And it's just a really beautiful book. And I just hats off to you. I know writing a book is a lot, but you did amazing. And congratulations on your success. Thank you. Just so folks know where to go to get it. So you can go to the website, thoughtsorehabits2.com, and there's an order now button that will take you to Amazon. So you don't have to go searching for the book, but you can also just go to Amazon and search for the book if that's your preference. Absolutely. And then what and, about your social media handles and stuff? Oh, one one other thing. If you want the free excerpt of the book, then you need to go to thoughtsorehabits2.com. Okay. And if you try to exit the screen, the the screen will pop up saying, do you want the excerpt? Played, yeah. <laughs> and people, yeah. Instagram, my handle is at Habit Whisperer. I love that. I love that. I want to come up with a new handle with something to whisper. Like that's, when I saw it, I didn't know that was your handle until after we'd spent the weekend together. And I was like, oh my God, the Habit Whisperer. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and that was actually, my partner came up with that. So kudos to Matt for that. I am going to start a YouTube channel. I have one video up there right now, and it's actually from my workshop this past Saturday, Dare to Dream Bigger workshop. So if you're doing any kind of goal setting, this is like the Goal Getter series. So that's part one. I'm having part two on January 2nd. So at Habit Whisper on YouTube as well. And then LinkedIn and Facebook, it's Amy Lang Coaching. A-M-Y-L-A-N-G. Well, I'll I'll get links and put them in the show notes for everybody. But thank you so much, Amy. This has been so fun. It's I'm glad that my audience knows you and we will do a follow up episode on the diet culture. So maybe a few months from now, I'll book you again. Okay, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I've had this has been so much fun just having this conversation and being able to sort of take a concept and really like peel away the layers. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening. I did put a link to Amy's book as well as her Instagram handle and the title of her podcast, Healthy and Happy, in the show notes. So check that out. And then if you liked this episode, share it with somebody. There is so much overlap between diet culture and sobriety culture. And the more of us that stand up and share with our fellow sisters the tools that we're finding to free ourselves so that we can escape the status quo, the more we all benefit. And it's unfortunate, but the ideas we've presented here are simply not mainstream. And yet they are the solution. And so do your part and share the show either on social media or forward the episode via link to a friend and let other people know that there is a way out of the crazy. 
One of my favorite taglines that I used in the book that I wrote years ago, Life Off the Label, is that it's just not normal to be healthy, and we have to choose between being normal and healthy. But I also think we have a call to action to change the normal. And the more of us that redefine normal for ourselves and share it with others, the better life's going to get for all of us, you know? So share the episode. Also reach out to me. If you're not on my email list, get in the show notes and click the link for my insider email because I send out an email with every podcast episode once a week. And that is the best way that you can reach out and talk to me. Ask me questions, give me your feedback, and I'll respond to you personally. Another place that you can find me is I just switched the name of my Facebook group from Recover with Colleen to it's not about the alcohol it's not about the alcohol podcast discussion. So in there I am starting to put in additional content that has to do with the podcast episode and of course also getting conversations started for all of us who want to connect with other people who are using mindset to solve their behavior problems because it is a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. And also, if you're on my email list, you will get notified when I do either free or low-cost events. Like this upcoming week on Sunday, I'm doing my recovery storytelling workshop. I do that once a month, and I send out emails so that you get notified and you can register. And when you register, not only do you get to come to the live workshop and get coached through through the three-part storytelling exercise that is designed to heal your past traumas by expanding the story, asking what else could be true. And I have a very specific process that I've developed where you tell your story three different times and I walk you through all that. And when you register, you not only get to come to the live workshop, but you also get access to the I, lack of a better word, lectures that I've delivered on storytelling, how it works, why it works, how and when to apply it. And so when you sign up for the workshop, you get access to all of those previous workshops where I've been teaching, and then you actually get to come to the live workshop and experience the process and get coached through it. So get in the show notes. If you're not on my email list, get on my email list. And finally, I do have a very special guest coming next week, Kate Donovan, C-A-I-T Donovan. She is the host of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. And she's kind of like, I went fishing and caught a big one. She's amazing. And I was on her podcast last week and she agreed to come on to mine. And she's going to share why your resentment is actually a superpower and how to use your resentment to heal, grow, and move forward. It's going to be a fantastic episode, and I can't wait to share it with you. So be sure to tune in next week. I'll see you soon.